This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, and welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. And I'm Vincent Cunningham. We three are staff writers at The New Yorker, and each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. This week, guys, I have music on my mind. Interesting. It, it might be because of the Grammys. It might be because of the Super Bowl halftime show by Usher Raymond, mm-hmm. one of my childhood heroes. Yes. And maybe, it, though, it's just because I'm in the middle of making a new playlist on Spotify and it's kind of kicking my ass. I'm stuck. What's mm. the first song? Ooh, the first song is Water by Tyla. Oh, you love that song. In I love fact, that song, the first time I know. heard the song was you singing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was very early on in the song's journey. Now we all know and love this huge hit, but the you definition were a... of word of mouth. Yeah. But I also just recently saw this Bob Marley biopic that's just out. It's called Bob Marley One Love. And it tells a sort of slice of life story of Bob Marley planning a concert in the middle of a sort of moment of political strife in Jamaica, uh, political violence between the two major parties there and Bob sort of as this symbol of freedom and hope in the middle of it. It's a hit. Reggae is the people music. You know you're a superstar. I am a superstar. You can't separate the music and the message. You see, reggae music come to unify the people. Not everyone likes what you're saying. For your own safety, you need to stop. Nomi, I know you saw this movie. I did see this movie. What did you think about this movie? I did not like it, Vincent. I, neither did I. Can you tell me a little, <laughs> the tiniest bit about why you did not like it? Yeah, we'll go into this uh, in more detail, I think, in, in a moment. But I just thought it was a pale rehashing, almost abstract, I would say. Yeah. Uh, kind of like rushing through the motions uh, of a period in Bob Marley's life that is sounds extremely interesting, but it was just so um, kind of like cliche ridden and nonspecific to yeah. me that I was, you know, I, I do have to admit I even fell into a sweet slumber for about 10 minutes <laughs> in there. I did watch the movie, not, not to say I am qualified to speak on it. I, I just... <laughs> you sound qualified to speak on it. And, and, and if I'd I, say if, if it was an only 10 minutes of a nap, of course you're It qualified. was 10 minutes, and I and yeah. I kind of, I, I really roused myself. You pulled yourself and, back from the brink. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it classically, for this, this genre, the biopic, it tried to do at once too little and yes. too much, giving us a exactly. sort of thin soup of Bob Marley. Thin soup. But, but we'll get back to it. Today we're going to talk about One Love, and we'll talk about the Grammys and Usher's, to me, amazing Super Bowl performance. All three of them, right, made me think about the question of legacy. 
It's a big word, right? And how it's constructed. Which elements of an artist's life get remembered? Which elements kind of fall by the wayside in the retelling? A big question I have is, what do we, broadly construed, all of us who love music, Mm -hmm. use famous musicians for? And when we're so-called, like, giving them their flowers, what are we saying about ourselves? So that's today on Critics at Large. Musical legacy and the art of the tribute. As we've already kind of teased, we're going to share some thoughts about this Bob Marley uh, biopic. But before we get to that, are there biopics about musicians that you guys actually really love or have shaped how you think about a musician and their work? I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic with Joaquin Phoenix. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the time it finds. Because you're mine. I walk the line. It really captured something of the music and made me, it really turned me on to the music also. Like, yes, Johnny Cash is kind of floating around, I think, in the ecosystem. And we all have some sense of what a Johnny Cash song sounds like. Mm -hmm. But it really, like, gave it a specificity to me and made it work. I mean, what you were saying about specificity is, for me, important when I'm thinking about a successful biopic. And when I was kind of wondering to myself, the the biopic, the musical biopic is so easy to get wrong, I think, and for it it to turn kind of one-dimensional. Why is that? I mean, we'll we'll think about it. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I want us to talk about that. Yeah, the the pitfall— and the reason that these things often don't work, right, is because I think they are construed often as straightforwardly hagiographic, like that, that their yeah. functional their function is not to um, make of the pop star a character who's interesting in a narrative, but to sort of account for them and convey their importance, right? Yeah, it's and not so, a person; it's a symbol. So there's and so in yeah. the in the bad biopic, mm-hmm. which might be like the truly like symptomatic representative whatever biopic like um we get every moment has to be freighted with import every moment has to be a a snippet from the wikipedia or something that teaches you in a a certain way instead of being off to the side right Mm -hmm. instead of Mm -hmm. taking you down an alleyway of of like uh sort of i don't know a meandering that we often like in other forms of narrative the 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 bad biopic doesn't have time for that Totally. Yeah, I think there are even further problems. Like um, there are even further problems than than what you lay out. One of them is that there are certain tropes to the experience of a rock star or a pop star. We know that this person is going to get a deal at some point. They're going to get a record deal, and right. before they got the record deal, they didn't have one, and they were a nobody. <laughs> so we got to see them as a nobody. We got to see them getting the deal. These are cliches that are true, but the feeling around them is often rendered exactly the same and flat. Mm -hmm. And then also we're often coming to these movies with a real sense of who this person is as an artist, the persona, and and feeling like we know them as a person. I think this is also something that's very specific to music and to musicians, where music is such a connecting force, such a powerful, overpowering force, that when we love a song or we love a band or a performer, we really feel a sense of intimacy and knowledge. And so 
a music biopic tries to capitalize on that by bringing us even closer to that person and I think often can seem alienating as a result because you just think like, no, that's not quite right. Yeah, I mean, I want to know what you guys thought about the Bob Marley biopic because full confession, I did not have a chance to see it. The phrase thin gruel does not make me feel that I missed much. <laughs> no, you didn't you didn't miss much, which is really too bad because I, I wanna go back to what you just said about the power of music. Uh I mean, Marley's music is, you know, undisputably powerful and amazing. And I think one thing that is enjoyable about this movie is that they had the music rights because it was made with the participation of the family. The you know there are many Marleys, you know that get that get a credit at mm-hmm. the end, and so the, you know the upshot of that, the the positive of that is that the songs are amazing, and I think what they did is what I I believe they have been doing recently in a variety of of, of musical biopics is they meld. Kingsley and Adir's voice with Marley's voice. Oh, interesting. I think there are parts yeah. where it's like, you know, especially in the live live singing footage, either when he's like coming up with a song. Of course, one of the big chintzy uh, tropes of these movies is some sitting on a couch, noodling around on a guitar. Yeah. He creates a song that we all know and right. love out of nowhere. I mean, literally in those the moments, first it's like five sort minutes of, of the movie, him. he's uh, driving in the car in Kingston with uh, two of his sons, Ziggy and another one of his sons, yeah. uh, they hear s- some piece of worrying news on the radio about the politics, which actually is 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 also remains quite abstract in the movie. It's like, there were two warring factions, you know, and it's like, yeah. okay, this is a little bit, can, can we get a little bit more meat on this, you know, on this conflict right here to understand the stakes and like what it means and, and where Marley stands and because the whole thing is, you know, kind of propped up on on the you know the question of political conflict in in Jamaica in the late seventies, uh, but in any case, so they're in the, in the car and he turns off the radio. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that thing. Cause every little thing gonna be alright. You like that one? Yeah. And then, of course, proceeds immediately to go into a Don't verse or two. <laughs> about, about a thing. <laughs> and he's like grabbing them because every yeah. little thing. And, and I was like, like oh they God. just, they didn't just do that in they the did. first three minutes. You know, it's just so kind of, yeah, it's like with an yeah. anvil on the head at every moment. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, so again, the, the director of this film, by the way, his name is Ronaldo Marcus Green. And... Something that he's trying to fit so much about Marley and he wants to talk about the politics of Jamaica without talking about the politics of Jamaica. All. They don't really talk about that. It is really fascinatingly, and this is where I thought the movie could have been really good, about religion. Like Mar- Marley was a very uh, pious Rastafarian and he's always talking about that. He's also always saying like God's going to protect me. He talks about God. He's reading stuff about either Haile Selassie, the, the founder of and, and sort of object of devotion of mm-hmm. Rastafarianism, or he's reading about Marcus Garvey, these like liberationist politics. But again, they're like hinted at, but never. Um, Lashana Lynch, who was Rita Marley, really great performance, but it was the classic wife performance in one of these, you know, she's just there to support him. That's also she what sings I got in the from band. the trailer, She does this, way. does that. Has one, there's one moment, there's one passage of it where it's like, oh, wow, they're at a party and she's talking to another man which then Bob is getting more and more famous on this 
European tour. He gets jealous, but then she has the chance to unleash on him all of his infidelities and kids outside of their marriage and whatever. It's like the one moment, like, not a hero or whatever. But that was so brief, right? Well, so this brief. Is, well, this is interesting because, you know, first of all, Rita Barley and Bob Marley, very, it's very well known that they did not have a particularly faithful marriage. Like, that's not new. That's not like a shock or surprising ground to cover. And even, I'm sorry, just from watching the preview, I know this is gives me gives me not a leg to stand on. But I was very leg struck. Enough. Leg it gives, enough. It gives, me, it gives me leg enough to say that I noticed that this portrayal of Rita Marley was very, like, wide-eyed, in awe of the husband's talent and kind yeah. of devoted wife. I mean, do you think that that may have something to do with, as Nomi mentioned, like, clearly the Marley estate signed off on this? Is is there some of that? Because when you talk about the sanding down, Vincent, of Marley's beliefs and the not, the kind of unwillingness to engage with the depth of his beliefs around Rastafarianism or his practices around Rastafarianism, that is also true of kind of the way that most people engage with the image of Bob Marley. Like, he is kind of the ur-ubiquitous star. He is on, you the know— posters. Yeah, Bob Marley is kind of this— adolescent symbol of I don't really know what I think a general sense of rebellion and kind of being true to oneself but at the same time kind of totally and smoking weed and smoking weed that's yeah. for sure thank you yeah. Nick, that's absolutely true um yeah. but while smoothing over the what what Bob Marley was really about and so it seems interestingly that this movie just rather than correcting for that, continues that. It does from what that. You guys and, are saying. and there are moments when, you know, first of all, it, it's one of those classic movies of like, it has these title cards where it's like, Bob Marley, at the beginning, it's like, Bob Marley, a pop star and an, a, a Jamaican icon. Like, it's always trying to tell you about who he is and where he should stand in your esteem. And there's a moment where, you know, he goes on a European tour. This is the structure of the film, right? Act two is like a, a long concert footage of him in West Germany, him here, him there. Well, and he records in London. Records in London. Well. Yeah. And so he's all, he's all over Europe mm -hmm. getting more and more famous. And then he comes back for another concert. There's sort of act, act three, I guess, happens back in Jamaica. And there's a moment where he like lands on this plane and comes down the stairs of the plane. And ev it's like every single person, it looks like every person in Jamaica is mm -hmm. waiting for him on the tarmac, yeah. waving either the Rastafarian flag or the Jamaican flag, um, pulling at his clothes. He can barely get into the car. And it's clearly just there to, to remind you of his stature. The movie is the statue to him, right? The movie is trying to build a great monument in your consciousness. In a minute, can you dance on roller skates? I don't think you can. But do you know who can? Usher Raymond. <laughs> that and more in just a moment on Critics at Large. Oh my God. I screamed when the roller skates came out. Unbelievable. Screamed. I myself have been married for 56 years. Unfortunately to four different women. You can work out a whole lot of shit in the aisles of Target. Every week on the Moth Podcast, we share stories that are funny, strange, heartbreaking, and above all, true. I refuse to settle for being the future when I can be right now. 
Listen along by searching The Moth wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You know, we've been talking about the biopic, right, which deals with this question of legacy and how it's built in this really specific, really kind of blunt, often posthumous way. But we have a thing that happens every year that is kind of the beginning of legacy making for big pop acts, which is the Super Bowl halftime show. Yes. It's an honor to be asked to do it. It's so in, in some ways, it acts like a museum retrospective. Right. Here here are my greatest hits and here's what I ought to mean to you. Let me sort of reset the stakes of who I am. Yeah. This year, the 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 sort of recipient of that honor and I think the generous giver of some much more than that to us was Usher. Mm-hmm. Who I feel like I've grown up with. You know, make me want to leave the one I'm with to start a new relationship with you. On and on. These songs I grew up with. The the question of legacy. This is a performer at the height of his powers but that hasn't who has enough of a backlog to sort of fill this like absolutely hectic <laughs> you absolutely. know 13 and a half minutes or however long it was with like 7000 hits right that's right uh featuring you know other famous performers who kind of come and kind of garland this main performer um and kind of like give him this ballast to, to his importance and his centrality. And I think, Vincent, the idea of, like, we've grown up with this person, you know, yeah. and he deserves this, um, is really strong. There's, there's like, an idea of both... Uh, Nostalgia. This, you, you know, especially for millennials, I think, growing up with Usher and his back catalog is like a really lived experience, you know. And uh, and so there's there's this idea of a kind of collective memory, right? That's, right? that's coming together in this moment that's really spectacular in terms of the dancing, in terms of the pizzazz, in terms of you know all of the elements involved. It's like a show. This That's is right. the show of shows. Um, but it also, it, it's like a, a feather in the cap. It like cements a legacy and it allows a performer to look forward right. as well. Like, yeah. where do we go from here? Right. Now that look, we've look established this back. fact. That's right. Yeah. Alice, what did you think? Okay, so to begin with, I always find the Super Bowl halftime show 
a bizarre situation. It's just, <laughs> it's a fascinating conceit. The biggest concert of the year is actually an inset into the biggest sporting event of the year. You're performing in a stadium of thousands who've come to see other people. So, and yet, you've got to get them rooting for you. And, of course, the art of selecting the Super Bowl halftime show performer is someone who can accomplish just that, who everyone who's come to see football will also say, oh, fabulous, it's Usher. Like, I get a little <laughs> bonus of Usher. And meanwhile, right. like, those of us sitting at home, some of us may only be tuning in for the halftime show. I thought, as Nomi is describing, just hearing the hits that have been encoded on our brains. I think someone said, I think it was on Twitter or something, I saw a tweet fly by of some kind that said, you know, oh, this is what the boomers feel like when, like, their people perform at a halftime show. And now there's that feeling of, oh, we're of the age. It's right. now, enough there's enough of passed. a back catalog. I mean, yeah. people kept remarking on the fact that Usher, who, of course, is in spectacular physical shape, is 45. Um I thought he delivered and more, uh, like— And more. And more. First of all, I appreciate the sweat running down that man's face. Yeah. He is dancing. He is working. He is singing. He is twirling on his skates. He is reentering in sneakers. He is, you know, <laughs> shimming with Alicia how did he Keys. Put, yeah, how He's, did he put the outfit so quickly? How well, did he change outfits it's, so quickly? It's an art. I mean, the outfits themselves, of course. You know, my favorite one, I think, was what, what, what he wore on the roller skates. Um a kind of padded shirt that reminded me of what little kids wear when they're dressing up as wrestlers from Halloween, where right. like the abs are superimposed on right. top. Right, onto the thing. Yeah, it's like, like a superhero. Abs. Yeah, it's like a superhero outfit. Um, right. And on a grown man, frankly, is utterly ridiculous in a way that I was like, <laughs> "You go." You're the um, man. Yeah, I mean that said, and I think maybe this is where Vincent, you and I may part ways. Sure. I never find the energy of a Super Bowl halftime show to be fully satisfying because yeah. it's so interstitial. It's a weird forum. I still care about the Super Bowl performance largely because it's an opportunity to create a memorable moment. You know, I still watch sometimes um, Prince's Super Bowl performance. He's in yeah. that, like, turquoise and orange in 2007, I believe. It decides to rain on Prince, who you know, who's doing Purple Rain. It's a, it's like God saying, "I approve of this concert," yes. you know. And I'm always excited to see what a performer does in the moment of moments, and in a similar way to how I think about the Super Bowl. Like, I want to see again how amazing Patrick Mahomes is going to be when it all sort of his his again his legacy is on the line. By the way, congratulations to you, Patrick Mahomes, the greatest quarterback of all times. Any of anybody who cares about this podcast and also cares about sports can argue with me if you'd like, but he's the best ever. Anyway, um let's get him to listen. He's the be- Patrick, friend of the show. <laughs> if you're out there, come on the pod. Come on, come on the pod. Um I was just so amazed by him taking that chance, right? Because in the music business there is a a technical term the legacy act, mm-hmm. right? Not the abstraction of what is your legacy, but mm-hmm. there are people, you know, Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, the Rolling Stones, Billy Joel, who like, you know, j- does nothing but sell out Madison Square Garden. Someone who... Because on, he's the absolute best. He's the best. But uh, on the strength of their hits, on the strength of their past, can tour and tour and tour and uh, 
without the sort of added burden of coming up with new music. That's what we call a legacy act, right? Mm -hmm. You're already stamped. Wherever you show up, there are fans who are going to follow and go with you. And so Usher announcing, I'm one of those, is such such an interesting thing to me. Well, I have a question because, um, Vincent, I think your point is really interesting about, like, Usher making a case that Mm -hmm. he is a legacy artist. Like, and especially at an interesting moment in his life and career. He's 45. You know, he has a new album out, which he did not— play from, you know. It's not that good. But do you think, do you think there's, well, so this is my question. Do you think there's possibly a trade-off between declaring yourself or trying to make a case for yourself as this legacy artist and trying to break new ground musically? Can they be compatible? I, it's a good question. And yeah, I think there's a, a, a slight incompatibility. Like the more that, the, the more that our culture becomes kind of self-aware and therefore like self-reflexive, like a sort of a, a retrospective cast. And this isn't just in music. If you listen to sports television, all of it, it's going to be the Chiefs have won their third Super Bowl. What is their legacy? What does this team mean? The history is being written right now. And what will the people 20 years from now say is mm-hmm. what that question really means. Mm-hmm. What, what trying to forecast, what is LeBron James's legacy? We ask this question a lot. And I think it's because of like the rise of digital media and how easy it is for us to look back, how easy it is for us to like immediately go listen to every single Joni Mitchell album and develop ideas about them as if we lived in the past, as if we lived in the time of their their come up. So it's like now these artists are obsessed, I think, with their own legacy. It's not just us looking back at Bob Marley, who was dead. It's people trying to erect these statues of themselves as they are living. And I do think that there is a trade-off there. In a minute, we'll talk about Jay-Z's big speech at the Grammys and more. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. I do want to mention this issue of legacy around the Grammys, which I think this year were yeah, all please. about legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that you made me think of, Vincent, when you were talking before about making a case was Taylor Swift, who I think maybe is the definition of the artist who's obviously a legacy artist, but who can't – like who's just marching forward in her world domination. Like, of course, famously at this Grammys, she was like, and guess what? My new album's coming. So yep. when she won her first award, that's the, she used that occasion. To... Yes, and you know, in the Grammys as well, there was the moment when um, 
Taylor Swift pulled Lana Del Rey up to the stage mm-hmm. when she got her. She won uh, album of the she year. She won album of the year. Fourth time, which makes her the most, the, the, the person who's won that the most. winningest, yeah, album of the year uh, artist ever. And uh, she pulled Lana on the stage to sort of give her props and said about Lana Del Rey, she's a legacy artist. She said those words. She did. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting especially vis-a-vis what is considered a legacy artist. I think she was trying to say, this is someone, listen, pay attention to her now, because she's going to be one of these people in the future who we talk about in right. in yeah. totally hollow tones. And I think she's one of those people who's working at her peak right now, so pay attention as it's happening. Right, right. So there's one moment at the Grammys that feels especially worth mentioning. This is Jay-Z uh, accepting the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award. Here. But then, 98, I took a page out of their book. I was nominated for the best rap album, and DMX had dropped two albums that year. They both were number one. Shout out to DMX. And he wasn't nominated at all. So I boycotted, and I watched the Grammys. <laughs> I'm just saying, we just, we want y'all to get it right. We love y'all, we love y'all, we love y'all. We want y'all to get it right, at least get it close to right. And obviously it's subjective. Y'all don't got to clap at everything. Obviously it's, sub- obviously it's subjective because... And he's accepting this award and he starts talking about Beyonce. He's pointing out that she has more Grammys than anyone as of last year, but she's never won Album of the Year. But, you know, some things, you know, I don't want to embarrass this young lady, but she has more Grammys than everyone and never won Album of the Year. So even by your own metrics, that doesn't work. Think about that. The most Grammys never won album of the year. That doesn't work. You know, some of you, some of you going to go home tonight and feel like. So, okay. Um, To my mind, a very annoying and somewhat distasteful speech. Um, And we can talk about that. I I may be in the minority there. Um, But it does put forward this idea of what it means to be an artist until they give you the accolades that you think you deserve. Mm-hmm. Again, this sort of living in the present with all, a, a, a preordained sense of retrospection. Here's how I want to be seen. It's really interesting. Jay-Z, of course, is complaining about when he says this young lady, he's saying he's talking about his wife, Beyonce. Um, who's 42, let's be clear. Who's 42 years old. Um, uh, young at heart. Amazing. Um, but... She's won the most Grammys in history as of last year, has not won Album of the Year. Um, And the worry, the anxiety is, will history, therefore, it's kind of pragmatic. It's like if people are looking at this sort of, I don't know, um, quantitatively, when we look back in the books, who won the most Album of the Year, whatever, will they give her the due that she um, so obviously deserves as we have lived, you know, lived the Beyonce experience? Um, But... I don't know how does how does how do artists' self conceptions and self making and sort of self uh, icon making interact with our own uses of their celebrity and and their identity? Yeah, I mean, it seems like two different categories to me, or two different. I mean, this this speech is, you know, as as you kind of pointed out, Vincent is obsessed with data. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, 
obsessed with numbers, obsessed with tallying, obsessed with calculating. And I can see I can see why, obviously. I mean, it's kind of obvious why that has its own import, um, especially if, as Jay-Z points out, you have, have come from the outside, then the history is pretty short relatively speaking, for, for black musicians and, and you know, the, the type of, like, institutional accolades that, that they have been getting. Uh, so, I, so I get that. But when we think about, for the listeners, um, what it means for a musician to be meaningful, you know, or to be a legacy musician in the heart of 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 a listener. <laughs> it's like, is that what we really care about? Certainly it's not what I care about, but I don't know. I mean, maybe others. You know, it, it sounds to me more kind of closer to the type of tallying that hap- that happens in kind of like fan culture right now, which yeah. I don't really un- totally understand. Kind of like, right. oh, she... How could you not give this to her? How could you not? How could you give this to him and not to him? You know, the the sort of constant kind of like combativeness based on these um, supposedly, yeah, supposedly objective metrics, uh, which even Jay-Z notes are not really objective, you know, can't be objective. Right. One thing I find kind of touching in it is, like, Jay-Z going back into his, like, imagining kind of a young, brash Jay-Z who, like, the attitude is all like, hey, we're coming through now, you know, we're hip-hop, we're rap, like, you guys can't handle it, you guys don't want to, like, put DMX up for album of the year, we'll go, you know, fuck off. Right. But then also watching it in his hotel room because you can't get rid of the aura and the still the sense of what it means. Um, but like, you know, what about if I may just call back to the year 1863, what about the Salon des Refusés? You know, a bunch <laughs> of like impressionist painters right. are saying to the official French salon, oh, I'm sorry, you want us to put like, you know, you want us to put Venus and Cupid up forever and like, you know, show this super hyper realist painting of mythic and historical subjects? Well, we're actually a little more interested in how light looks when it hits water. That's right. So that's where we're at right now. And you don't want to show that on your official walls? Well, we're going to create our own system because we are not going to wait for you to catch up to us. And you will. And if you don't, fuck you. You know, we're where we're at. So it's so interesting that, like, the potential for this kind of, you know, idea of, well, we're working outside the system. You better come around. There's something really unstable in that relationship between the rebels who now are inside and no one is more inside than Jay-Z. I mean, it just seems, um, yeah, to want the very official, the kind of, um, you know, frankly, lamest channels to come recognize you. That gives the Grammys more power. Like this critique of the Grammys to me gives them way more power. It's it's interesting. So I'll I'll, I'll qualify in two ways why, you know, on some level I, I shouldn't be annoyed by this. One is, okay, we're kind of in the second generation of, you know, big globalized commercial pop music, which means that um, today's artists have a whole century, give or take, of, again, data as to what did the people before me who we still remember do, what accolades did they garner, what was their path, and how can I on some level replicate that? You know, when we talk about Taylor Swift, for example, a lot of what we say is that she's very savvy. You know, that Mm -hmm. on the level of public relations, on the level of marketing, um, image making, that she has 
by studying the Beatles, by studying Michael Jackson, whoever you want to talk about, has is following on some level a template that leads to mega stardom, right? Fine. I will note, though, that what that does is take away the element of us. It's like, I don't want to leave my legacy in the hand of listeners, for goodness sake. I need to, you know, make a certain number of institutional structural moves that put me where I want to be after I'm dead. Um, The other thing is that I think Jay-Z is trying to talk about you know, when he says, get it right, get it right, he's trying to talk about the underrepresentation of black music and specifically hip hop. Like this year, Killer Mike, a great rapper, won rap album of the year. I love his album, Michael. That award was, again, not televised. Right. So it, to the extent he's making a structural argument about race and genre and um, the way companies make money off of hip hop but then do not reflect it in the wider culture, okay, fine. But I will note that the way that he is doing that is by talking about his billionaire wife, who he wants us to feel some sort of pity for because she hasn't gotten the one, you know, spoke in this crown. Whereas, of course, what we think of this is totally your point about the Impressionists and, and other art movements. What we like about artists is that they don't care about this stuff, right? That they are on some level unsullied. Or they give the impression of not caring, which maybe is maybe another career move. Yeah, right. Like, you know, maybe maybe Monet or whatever and Manet are sitting watching the televised salon and they're just like, you know, eating a burger in a hotel room. Right. Just like, God damn it. Like, you know, all yeah. right, they're going for those guys with the little brush strokes again. <laughs> yeah. It's this thing, though, about like they were for. What's interesting about those people is that they are foregoing. They're, they're trusting that my art will enshrine me. At some level, some, someone much later will, will pick up on this and it will matter. Whereas today's artists often come across to me, pop musicians, the big, whatever, market-level pop musicians, I won't make a general statement, strike me as control freaks. It's like um, Absolutely. the biopic, for example, that just to go back to this example of um, One Love, right? Just as the biopic tells you what you ought to think, tries to control not just your sort of, you know, narrative enjoyment, but your sort of legacy, your Mount Rushmore yeah. awareness of a person. Today's artists seem often to want to do that in real time. And, it's, and, and it actually has a market corollary because we're in the era of the, you know, the authorized biopic. It's like always, you know, I want to put forward my own hagiography. So that I can be in control of how you think of me later on. Yeah, it seems to me self-defeating yeah. and also ungenerous to audiences. Yeah, especially if it's a yeah, if you're not willing to reveal, if you're interested, as you said about Jay Z, uh, Alex, in this sort of white bread acceptance, you're going to construct to yourself a kind of monument that fits that that definition, and that's just not interesting. Like, where's the juice? <laughs> you know what I mean? And whatever happened to, like, I mean, once again, I'm going to, like, bring back my Gen X, <laughs> you know, identification. It's like, didn't we all, didn't we have a moment where we weren't supposed to care about this kind of thing? You know, like, didn't we, weren't we supposed to, like, 
post-Nirvana, weren't we su- supposed to think that sort of like these corporate institutions suck? But that has passed. You yeah, know? and I just I just want to say that I'm warring with my own feelings about the Jay-Z speech in part because like for like – Fans hold people to impossible standards all the time, and maybe one impossible standard is just we'll stay outside the system and reject the system. And <laughs> no, of course. So you know, yeah, and that it, seems very unfair to say. No, you shouldn't want the greatest global marker of success. You should, you know, be content to be outside the thing. Um, but yeah, Vincent, I think you're exactly right about this. Everything is shaping me. No one is. I mean, Taylor Swift and Beyonce are the two exemplars of this. I mean, another thing that happened at the Super Bowl is that Beyonce released two new songs. I think I saw someone on Twitter compare (laughs) it to being uh, the bridesmaid who's proposed to at the wedding, like just kind of totally (laughs) overshadowing Usher. Um, You know, I might might mention that she announced them in a Verizon ad. All I could think about while watching the ad was how much money Verizon must be paying to to get this honor. But like, isn't the, I mean, (laughs) not to be so pathetically building Black Basic, isn't the best builder of legacy to keep making good, interesting music and changing and reshaping? I mean, right? So it's... But of course, that's less reliably, quote unquote, objective than getting these like institutional accolades, right? I mean, we can... Which which brings us, yeah, maybe to another question of, of the sort of the legacy of the heart, you know what I mean? <laughs> Rather than the legacy kind of writ large in uh, uh, corporate uh, terms or in, you know, institutional terms, whatever you want to call it, in metrics. Yeah. Uh, the legacy of the heart, my friends, you know, uh, whatever that might mean Well, to I us. think it means that people are still listening to your music and finding it wonderful and relevant for years. You know, a number of astonishing, to me, performances at this year's Grammys were about a deeper, truer sense of legacy, the kind of legacy that comes when people just really love your music and it means so much to them. Mm -hmm. And it's not about brand building. It's about having lived it. And I'm talking about Tracy Chapman and Joni Mitchell herself performing both sides now, um, sitting regally with a cane, her voice several octaves lower than it was at her peak, essentially doing a cover of her song because she's a different person than she was when she wrote it. A different singer. Those performances were amazing. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about why Tracy Chapman in particular moved people so much, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Performing Fast Car with Luke Combs, who's covered it and who brought that song back into the charts this year. There's something so special about Tracy Chapman's voice um, Mm -hmm. that is hard to put into words. But I think the purity of the performance, like, she's wearing jeans, she's wearing a button-down shirt, she doesn't have makeup on. You got a fast car, I wanted to get to anywhere, maybe we make a deal, maybe together we can get somewhere, any place is better, starting from zero, got nothing to lose, maybe we'll make something, be myself, I got nothing to prove. I think she actually, like, reminded people of what music can do and is about when you remove some of the fanfare around it. Yeah. It was, like, the exact opposite of the halftime show, and they both have their place. I got a plan inside of here, been working at the convenience store. Managed to save just a little bit of money, won't have to drive too far. And I think, crucially, it's not about icons as personalities. It's about not the durability of an image, but the durability of an artwork. Like, Fast Car, the reason it's amazing is that Luke Combs, you know, a country singer, 
a kind of bard of working class white America, let's say, can sing Fast Car, which is about someone in a bad situation loving someone else and together hoping, dreaming for more. That that idea is durable, that that can live in one moment in a black woman's body and it can live in another moment in a white man's body. And, it, you know, the, the memory doesn't inhere in a personality, but in a, tr- in, in a work of art, in the specificity of a work of art. Beyond the biopic, beyond the Grammy, whatever, is something that is, to your point about metrics, Nomi, like unquantifiable, which is the thrill of discovery. The true, you know, and, and, and some on some levels. Or the thrill of re-listening. Or re-listening, re-listening rediscovery. Yeah. You know, just somebody, I don't know if you guys have seen these videos. It's like these two black kids, like, listening to old songs that they've never heard. Of course. What are their names again? Oh, yeah. Of I've, course I know this. I forgot their names. but Oh, the, the famous one of them listening to. Um, in the air tonight. Yes, Phil in the air Collins. tonight. And, like, they hear that. Which comes like three quarters of the way into the song. Yeah, yeah and they're yeah. like, holy shit. And yeah. it's like, and that is timeless and it cannot be easily like transmuted into money or accolades or whatever. But it's like, that's the heart of it. Like someone picks it up and well, passes like, it like a baton to the next generation. I can see it now with my daughter who's listening to like music that I listened to in the 90s and is like, you know discovering, like, nirvana. Yeah, and she probably feels it as a statement of rebellion against you to some degree, which, honestly, if it's doing its job, she should. Yeah. Even though you're handing it directly to her. Yeah, absolutely. This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Condé Nast's head of global audio is Chris Bannon. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music, and we had engineering help today from Jake Loomis, with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics. And you can email us at the mail at newyorker.com with the subject line, Critics. Critics at Large is, by the way, taking a break next week. But we'll be back in your feed the week after that. Have a great long weekend. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From PR.